0: have a Bible there are men coming up the aisles right now they do have Bibles and just wave and get their attention and they'll uh, hand one down the road to you and get it into your hands so you can hear the word of God and read it with your own eyes and Sunday morning we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and uh, and in a wonderful section of of that This morning in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came. Bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, and then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jew is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, and so there they laid Jesus, because of the Jewish, the Jews' preparation day for the tomb. Was nearby. Let's pray together. Father, when we turn to your word, we realize how precious every verse of it is. Every sentence, every line. We think about how big these Bibles could be. If you so many things that you could say, and yet you've just got it right down to what we need to know about you this side of heaven. And so we count every passage a treasure. We're so thankful to turn to every bit of your word. We know that there's a work of your Holy Spirit that needs to occur in each one of our lives through every passage of the Bible. And so we ask you to do that work of your Holy Spirit that this passage is supposed to Produce within us as your followers today, and even as those that stand before you and don't know you yet, Father, that your spirit would work mightily through your scriptures. Give us a wonderful time of fellowship with you, a wonderful time of revelation. Lord, we thank you for every revelation of our Savior and of our Lord. Bless us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he declared the gospel, the good news of salvation that's found in Jesus, to be made up of three very specific things. First, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Second, that he was buried. And third, that he rose again from the dead on the third day. The passage itself goes like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, and by which you are saved if you hold fast that word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. All of these three ingredients are necessary in order to provide sinful man, fallen man, with good news in the light of our need for the forgiveness of our sins, and in light of our need for salvation. Well, I think somebody might listen to a statement like, what I've just been saying, and they might say, well, I understand the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. I even understand the necessity of him being raised from the dead on the third day. But what I don't understand is the significance of his burial. And the answer is found in the phrase that's repeated twice by Paul in writing to that church at Corinth, and it's a phrase that goes like this, According to the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament declare that the coming Messiah or the coming savior of the world would not only die for our sins and rise again on the third day, but that he would also be buried and that his dead body would be placed in a grave. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave, speaking of the Messiah. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Well, I think that somebody else might then think, well, of course he would be buried. After all, if he died, doesn't it go without saying that certainly he would, as a result, be buried? No, it doesn't. For the simple reason that it was not the custom of the Romans to give those that had been crucified for a capital crime over to an individual burial or a decent burial. As far as Rome was concerned, the death of criminals like this were not to be mourned, and thus their bodies were usually taken from the cross Over into the valley of Hinnom, which was basically a great garbage dump that was burned 24 hours a day as the fire would make its way through the dump. And the bodies would then be thrown into that dump to then be eaten by birds and by wild animals. Or at best, the bodies would be removed from the cross and thrown into a mass grave or a common grave for criminals. This was especially true of those that were accused of treason against Rome, which was the very accusation that Jewish religious leaders brought to Pilate to make supremely against Jesus. But 740 years before Jesus came into the world, Isaiah the prophet had prophesied that not only would the Messiah die in coming here, Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus was born, not only would he die by means of crucifixion, but that rather than his body being thrown into some kind of common grave or into some dump in order to be eaten by animals, that he will die on the cross, but his body will be buried. And not only buried, but buried in a rich man's tomb. Again, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. This tells us that the Roman soldiers were intending to come later and take all three of the bodies, Jesus and the two thieves that were crucified on either side of him, and to take those bodies and to throw them in the valley of Hinnom or in a mass grave where they threw all of the other wicked people or these that had committed these kind of capital crimes against Rome and against humanity. Now, once again... I think it's important to put ourselves in the place of the Apostle John. And he, as he is writing this, as a witness, he's watching this scene of Jesus' crucifixion. And he sees Jesus now dead on that cross. He is hanging limply now on that cross, held only by those nails. And as we saw last week, as he was watching Jesus hanging dead on the cross, wonder of wonders... This group of soldiers that had been dispatched by Pilate to break the bones of all three that were on the cross. Jesus and the two thieves. They came and broke the bones in the feet and in the legs of the two thieves. But then seeing that Jesus was already dead, did not break his bones in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures that declared that not a bone of the Messiah would be broken. And then further he watched as... With this great expertise of a skilled soldier and the praetorian guard were among the elite of Roman soldiers as the one guard took the spear, brought it up under the ribcage of Jesus and with a single jab pierced his heart and the pericardium and out came the blood and out came the water. Just as the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures had prophesied would be true of the Messiah. But there's another prophecy which needed to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to be the Messiah according to the Scriptures. And that phrase is an important phrase. When Paul says that Jesus was and is the Messiah according to the Scriptures, he's saying something significant. Not just anybody could show up 2,000 years ago and say, hey, I'm the Messiah and everybody ought to follow me. Nobody can show up in the world today and then declare themselves simply by word and say, Hi, I'm the Messiah, promised Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, and all of you ought to follow me. The Old Testament contained hundreds and hundreds of prophecies given by God concerning the coming of this man, so that when he came, we would notice who did and who did not match the description, and when we finally would see a man come into human history that completely fulfilled those Old Testament prophets, prophecies, we would recognize this is the one that has been sent by God in order to save us from our sins. And so, as John looks at Jesus on the cross, he realizes there's another Scripture, Old Testament prophecy, that needs to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to be the Messiah according to the Scripture. Jesus now needed to be buried from off of that cross. And not only did he need to be buried, but according to the Scriptures, he needed to be buried in a rich man's tomb. Again, as John looks at that scene, it looks as if that's an impossibility, that there is no way that that is going to happen as it relates to Jesus' body. How in the world is that prophecy going to be fulfilled? None of the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, had made any arrangements for his death. They were probably more surprised by Jesus' death than anyone else in Jerusalem. Not one of the disciples was rich, much less rich enough to possess a rich man's tomb. In fact, none of the other disciples were even within eyeshot of John as he is at the scene from a distance watching the crucifixion of Jesus. They've scattered in all different directions out of fear for their own physical safety. And none of them were prominent enough socially to even gain access to Pilate to even attempt to secure the release of Jesus' body to them. And why in the world would Pilate allow the death of this accused criminal in in the minds of the Jewish religious leaders? Why would Pilate even allow Jesus to be buried anyway? And so John watches this scene in the light of Isaiah's prophecy regarding the burial of Jesus. And once again, it looks as if there's no way it's going to be fulfilled. And then out of nowhere... I mean literally out of nowhere, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and a man by the name of Nicodemus, walk into this prophetic scene. And God is going to use them to fulfill that passage in Isaiah. I'll tell you, God has resources we know nothing about. He has As he looks at the circumstances of the world, as he looks at what he faces, as he looks at our lives, he there is no chance at all that any of his promises are ever going to fail. And so here I think of... Elijah in the Old Testament where he came to God and it looks like he's the last prophet. He says, God, I'm the last one that's making a stand for you and speaking for you and all. And I'm on, you know, Jezebel's menu. And soon as uh, she kills me, your voice is going to go silent here in Israel. And the Lord spoke to uh, Elijah and said, Elijah, I have seven thousand just like you that haven't bowed their knee to all God's plan and his program in this world is never in jeopardy. He's not on any heart medications. He's not dealing with any high blood pressure. He doesn't worry about what's happening in this world. He looks at things and he knows he has all the resources he needs to make sure that every one of his promises are yea and amen in human history and in each one of our individual lives. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, is an interesting man. We're told that uh, he originally came from a village uh, called Arimathea and thus uh, the attachment to his name. It was a village. It was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He was a prominent man uh, uh, of the, on the Jewish council, which means he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. One of the 70 most powerful Jewish religious men, not only in Israel, but in the entire world. He was a good man, Luke's gospel tells us. Luke also tells us that he was a just man. And we know it to be true because when the Sanhedrin had unjustly assembled together and condemned Jesus to death, Joseph of Arimathea in that courtroom setting refused to consent with the decision that they had made and he stood opposed to it. The Bible also tells us in Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, that he was a man that was waiting for the kingdom of God. He believed in God. He believed in the Word of God. He believed in the Messiah that was going to be introduced into human history and bring in the kingdom of God into the world. He was a rich man, we're told in Matthew's Gospel, significant for our purposes this morning. He was an older man because the tomb that uh, that Jesus is going to end up being buried in was a tomb that had been carved out for him prepared for him. And only a rich man could have a tomb carved in those days. You go to Jerusalem today and it's a city that's on mountains. It's stone everywhere. There's stones. It's just rock. And so when people would want to be buried in those days. They would find one of the many caves that surround on all of those mountains. And you would then, uh, you know, lay claim to that cave, maybe on your property, buy a cave from somebody who owned the property. You would then be buried there and it would become the burial place for your uh, ancestors. But any burial place near Jerusalem, that was a uh, high dollar uh, a graveyard that was very precious ground. Because Jerusalem was the site of the Mount of Olives, where the scriptures declared that the Messiah would come in his second coming. It was also the site, the capital of Jerusalem and the site of the location of the temple. So pious people, religious people, people that loved God, would they endeavored to have themselves and their families buried as a demonstration of their love for God as close to Jerusalem as they can. But after time, hundreds of years, you can imagine all of the caves would have been claimed. So what does a person do when there's no caves to be bought or to to bury your family in? And yet you have such a love for God that you want even where you're buried and how you're buried to be an expression of your desire to be near to God. And what you would do is what Joseph of Arimathea did. And that is you would hire men with chisels to chisel a grave to chisel a tomb out of solid rock for you and for your family and only a rich man could hire the number of men for the length of time that would be required in order to do that. And Joseph of Arimathea had done that. We're told that Joseph of Arimathea in verse 38 had become a disciple or a follower of Jesus. But we're also told that he did that secretly. And we're told in verse 38 that completely on his own, he went to Pilate and he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Again, it's doubtful that any of the eleven disciples, the apostles, could have ever gained an, an audience with Pilate. But here is Joseph of Arimathea. God knows where he's got his people, even if they're there secretly. And so here is Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, great title, great wealth, great prominence. Thus, all of those things secured him an audience with Pilate when maybe nobody else would have gotten in front of Pilate. The last kind of person Pilate, I guarantee you, wanted to have in front of him Late in that day was another Jew. He didn't want to see another Jew that day. And yet, because of the prominence of Joseph of Arimathea, he allowed him to come in and he released the body to Joseph of Arimathea, which also tells us that Pilate did not believe the accusation of the Jews against Jesus of sedition against Rome or treason, because he would have never released Jesus' body and allowed him a decent burial if he had actually been guilty of treason or sedition. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, was accompanied in his actions with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And we know a little bit about Nicodemus from the Scriptures. He was a member of a religious sect known as the Pharisees. A group of people that were very serious about obeying the word of God, misguided, but very, very serious about it. Like Joseph of Arimathea, he also was a member of the Sanhedrin, very, very powerful religious man. It was this man, it was this Nicodemus that we remember back in John chapter three that had come secretly to Jesus by night because he didn't want anybody else to know that he was attracted to Jesus in his teaching, fascinated by Jesus, didn't want to ruin his reputation by being associated with Jesus at that point. So he came to Jesus secretly, caught Jesus alone at night, early in his ministry in the city of Jerusalem, and he declared to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him and it was to this very same nicodemus that jesus declared that one must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of god it was to this nicodemus that jesus spoke the most famous verse in all of the bible john 3:16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life The Bible tells us that Nicodemus was a good man, that he was also a just man. Earlier in John chapter 7, when the Sanhedrin had sent out officers and they had their own religious uh, police force. And so they sent out officers to arrest Jesus because they were alarmed by his growing popularity among the multitude. The police officials come back to the religious leaders empty-handed. And when they're rebuked by the Sanhedrin for coming not coming back with Jesus, they made a simple response, a simple explanation. They said, no man ever spoke like this man. You don't arrest a man that speaks with that kind of authority, and, and we dared not to do that. And then in that setting... Nicodemus came to Jesus' defense And he said to the Sanhedrin that was assembled Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him speaking of Jesus And knows what he is doing And they shouted him down They mocked him down They scorned him down And they said to him Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee and when he had been shouted down or shamed down he just went silent in his attempt to further defend Jesus it appears that nicodemus never could forget the discussion conversation that he had with with jesus there in john chapter 3 and that all the things that jesus said to him worked on his heart worked on his mind until ultimately he became a follower of Jesus himself, but like Joseph of Arimathea, a secret one. And the Lord then used these two men to fulfill that great prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 in Jesus being buried and buried in the tomb of a rich man. I think to myself as I look at these two men, What in the world drove them out of their life of secrecy about being a follower of Jesus and brought them out into the open where they just now fearlessly and publicly identify with Jesus and in essence say, I don't care what this means to me. I don't care what risk is required to do it. I want the whole world to know that I am not a part of that But I am a part of what he is about. What happened in the lives of these two men? I'll tell you what happened. The cross. Jesus' death upon the cross. That cross has been the cure for secret disciples for 2,000 years. Where a secret disciple looks long and hard at what Jesus has done for us there. There. We meditate on the suffering there, the price that was paid there, in order for us to be forgiven, to live a new kind of life. The price that he paid to make us his children and to do it because he loves me. And it's those great truths that are associated with the cross. Sometimes it doesn't happen the day that we become a Christian like Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus three years before he was crucified. All of He's a secret disciple for a very long period of time. But as these truths worked upon him, as he looked at the cross, as he looked at what the world was willing to do to the one that he loved and the one that he knew to be who he claimed to be, and he realized that this man and what he has done forces me to make a choice between the world that will do that to him and him. And he decided as he saw him on that cross, and he realized, I've got to identify with one or the other. And it, it, whatever the price would be to him, his position is in, in the religious community, whatever it might be, he said, I openly and I publicly choose him. And it was the cross that made him do that. And it's the cross that brings us out into the open, where we reach that point where we think, I don't care what this... Wicked and adulterous generation thinks of him anymore. I don't care what it thinks of me anymore. I all I care about is willingly taking up my cross and following him. The Apostle Paul spoke of the effect of the cross upon his life and writing to the churches in Galatia. He said, but God forbid that I should glory except in the cross. "...of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saw what this world did to Jesus at Calvary, that was it for them. It pushed them out of the shadows, pushed them right out into the open. And we look at the world that we live in today, and it's no different in its attitude toward Jesus... Jesus would probably be crucified in less than three and a half years if he came into the world today. And this world that we live in today, it slanders him, it mistreats him, it misrepresents him, it mocks him, and it pushes, and it pushes, and it pushes against him. And not only against him, but us as his disciples. And ultimately, it forces every disciple to stand up and to be counted for Christ where we just say, enough is enough, I have nothing to be ashamed of in following Him. The world ought to be ashamed of its treatment of Him, and it ought to be ashamed of all of the sins and wickedness that it's willing to engage in and will not give up in order to follow Him. And that's what the world does ultimately and wonderfully in one sense, it pushes and it pushes and it pushes and it pushes and it pushes until one day there we sit, maybe a silent disciple for weeks and months and even years. And then some relative says something, someone over here says some, something, some co-worker says something. And it's just, we look at it and say, that's the line. I, that, I will, I will not be silent in the face of that. And it forces us out. And and pushes us in that way until one who even attempts to keep Jesus' lordship in their life quiet, sooner or later is forced to make a stand. And I say it's wonderfully so because it's exactly as Jesus would have it. Jesus spoke and he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, you'll lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, you'll save it. For what advantage is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Elsewhere, he said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. There is no cause for being ashamed of Christ and every reason in the world to be ashamed of rejecting him in order to follow the sin of. And the spiritual adultery of this world. And sometimes all of this happens by degrees. It comes with growth. For some of us it doesn't happen, as I said, in the first day of our Christian life or the first week or the first month of our Christian life. Sometimes it happens in over time with growth by degrees as it did with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But it happens. Nicodemus came to Jesus that first time secretly at night. Then he comes and makes this defense where he's shouted down and he kind of meekly and weakly backs down and is quickly silenced. And then finally, he makes publicly identifies himself as a disciple of Jesus at whatever the cost. What lay between? Those first two events and the final event, the cross, the cross, seeing Jesus on that cross, processing that cross. When the desire to express our love and respect for him becomes greater than our fear and it becomes greater than anything the world could offer us. These men were afraid in religious environments. And for many people, they have to cast off great fear to put their personal faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and to lose all in the religious system that their entire life is invested in. In order to become an open disciple of His. That's not just 2,000 years ago. That happens all over the world. Even today. And when it happens, it's wonderful. Because as we see in both of their lives, it's absolutely liberating. I want us to notice the burial that they gave Jesus. And you watch Him. The portrait is for us right there in the Scriptures. As they lower that cross with Jesus hanging on it to the ground, as they carefully and lovingly and gently remove those nails from His hands and from His feet. I used to work for the phone company as a lineman. And we used to drive. We would, we would drill into these holes And then we would pound these steps into the poles so you could climb these poles without uh, putting your hooks on. Down below in the lower section, you'd put in these false kind of plugs in there so that the kids couldn't scamper all the way up. And you'd have a special uh, step that you would put on it that only people that needed to get up there could have. And it's something to take a, a, a great stake And then a a great, great hammer, powerful hammer. And then to just pound it into that wood with all of your might. And even with a drilled hole, the strength that it takes to do it. And then to endeavor to remove those steps from that pole. These were in a screw form, so you'd pound them in and you could back them out by unscrewing them out. Even that took great effort. And here they are, none of that, none of these screw drives or any of this kind of thing. They're going to remove those nails from his hands and from his feet. And then they would have prepared Jesus's body for burial. And the passage we're reading here this morning is very careful to tell us that Jesus was buried as uh, prescribed by the custom of the Jews. The Jews didn't bury the way the nations of the world around them buried, nor do they to this day. The Egyptians would gut a body. They would take out all of the vital organs, add preservatives to the muscles, all of this. The Jews never did that. The Jews would take the body of a loved one. They would lay that body out and they would wash that body from head to toe. And you picture Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus having the privilege of wiping off the blood and the spit and the sweat. From the body of Jesus. And as they did, all of the holes of his body, these gaping holes from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, became absolutely apparent to them. Able to see it clearly. And then they began to wrap Jesus' body with linen. Long strips of linen. And as they would wrap the body, they would put the spices in between the linen as they would continue to wrap. And and as they're wrapping Jesus' body, Joseph of Arimathea probably wrapping the linen. And here is Nicodemus putting the spices into the folds of the linen in order to to anoint Jesus for burial in this way. And Nicodemus brought enough spices to bury a king. A hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe. That cost a fortune in that day. We're told by tradition that Nicodemus was the third richest man in Jerusalem at that time. This was a very expensive expression of his love for Jesus. Jesus. And you look at Nicodemus, how does he even it? He brings a hundred pounds of these spices to the burial of Jesus. And maybe Joseph of Arimathea looks at it and says, Nicodemus, that's enough for a king. Precisely. This is a bare minimum is required for me to express my love and respect toward the body of this man who's died for my sins. And then they lay Jesus in that new tomb. One in which no one else had ever been laid, we're told. Which Joseph had hewn out of the rock for himself. And so Joseph gave Jesus a tomb. And Nicodemus gave him the linen and the spices to wear in the tomb. The one thought of one thing, the other of something else. And together it was perfect for Jesus. But I think it's. Interesting to realize, and to me it's one of the most tender parts of a very tender portrait of the passage that we look at this morning, to realize that following Jesus' death, God Almighty, God the Father, allowed only loving hands to touch His Son's body. As long as Jesus was in the sinner's place, God didn't interfere with what wicked hands did to him. But now that the sin question has been settled from that moment on, no hostile hand ever touched the body of Jesus. And so we come to the end of a very long day. So much has happened since that Early morning, arrest in the garden of Gethsemane, since Jesus was betrayed by Judas with that kiss. And Jesus is now dead. His body is lying in a new tomb, wrapped in beautiful linen, surrounded by the fragrance of spices. And he's laid in that tomb, and the stone is rolled across the face of that tomb. In that cool, dark place now shut off from all of the noise and commotion of the sinful world. I look at this account of Jesus' burial and I wonder what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus might tell us if they had the chance. And I think surely one of the things would be to openly identify with Jesus as our Savior sooner rather than later. The single greatest thing they ever did the single greatest experience they ever experienced in their life came after they went from being a secret follower of Jesus to being an open follower of Jesus it's interesting to me that they came to discover one another as followers of Jesus only as each of them made their faith known As Joseph made his steps to claim the body of Jesus, at the same time, Nicodemus is bringing linen and spices. And as we step forward out of the category of secret disciples, it's amazing to discover how many others are waiting for someone to step out of that secret life into an open life for Christ. And when they see that boldness, they're willing to do the same as well. And I think if every Christian... Not in some forced way, not in some guilt-ridden way, but in the natural way of the Holy Spirit. If every Christian made their relationship with Christ, their love for Christ, known openly rather than a secret, I think about what a difference it would make in our city, what a difference it would make in any city in this world. I noticed too the blessing of coming out from being a secret believer and that that blessing for them was immediate. Do you realize that only Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and two Marys were able to be present? at the greatest and the most important burial in the history of the world. And they'd have missed it if they'd have remained a secret disciple. We can't leave this passage without once again making mention of the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, even in Jesus's burial. Isaiah chapter 53, verse nine. And they made his grave. With the wicked. That's what they intended to do. But with the rich. At his death. All the way through the account of Jesus' death. Over and over again. In each of the Gospels. The Holy Spirit has the writer of these Gospels. Referencing Old Testament Scriptures. And when we read that according to. And according to. And according to. And according to. It is intended. It is intended. To make the reader realize that whatever Jew was doing on this scene, whatever Gentiles were doing on this scene, behind all of it, God was completely in control of the entire situation in order to provide you and I with the forgiveness of sins and salvation today. As Peter declared on the day of pentecost when he preached on that day and he said him speaking of jesus uh, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of god every fulfilled prophecy related to jesus's life And he fulfilled hundreds of them in his second coming. Some of them gigantic prophecies. Some of them little tiny strokes of the brush that he would be buried, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. So that when we would come to a place in our lives, in a place like this this morning, and we would begin to examine the life of Jesus and we would look at what this great portrait that God has given us, this great prophetic portrait of Him in the Old Testament, and then we would look at the life of Jesus that fulfilled it to a T, that we would realize and recognize this is the Messiah, this is the Savior that God promised to send in the world all the way back from Genesis chapter 3. And who... who Who in their right mind today, who who is conscious today can look at this world and not realize that man is in need of saving from himself? And why? Because of his sin and from his fallenness. In this prophetic picture, we look at just one prophecy here this morning, one tiny prophecy concerning Christ, and yet to understand that prophecy alone is enough to put our faith in Christ. I hear people say, and they talk about Christianity and, and that it requires a blind faith. I have to laugh when I hear that. What is blind from the perspective of heaven and from the perspective of the Christians, is not a faith in Christ. That is a reasonable position to take. What is blind and what is ignorant is to reject Jesus as the Messiah and as my Savior in the light of the testimony of the prophetic Scriptures toward Him. And when we put our faith in Him, we are doing it on the basis of the surest thing that exists in this world, and that is on the basis of God's Word that he always makes to have the final say in every circumstance and in every situation. If you sit here today and you have not yet put your faith in Christ, or you've been raised to think that it's some kind of just you put your blind faith in it, blind hope in it, and then you die and you hope for the best, God hasn't called us to that. He hasn't called us to a blind faith. When Paul went in the book of Acts over and over and over again, he went from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, calling people to a blind faith in Christ. He did not. He went to these synagogues and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He gave them a biblical reason for faith in Christ. And God said amen to that case that He laid out before those people. And they believed in Christ under salvation and turned an upside down world right side up. And God will do the same thing in your life. But He will turn an upside down life right side up before He'll use you to change the world. But He'll do both by simply confessing your sin to God today, asking for His forgiveness as you put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do that by believing in Him, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life. It's the greatest miracle that a person can experience. And everything changes for you today. You can be born again. A fresh start. Power to live the life that God has planned for you and it's all there for the asking look at how many people i speak to some in this room today look at all of the places we're looking to try and find fulfillment and yet somehow we want to find the meaning and the purpose of life and yet keep our life under our own control it can never happen and the reason we will never find fulfillment in that is because We have been created for a relationship with God. And until we are engaged in what we have been created for, there will always be that sense there must be something more. Because until we're engaged in that relationship with God, there will always be something more. That no vacation, no promotion, no title, no recreation, no learning, no degree, no anything can take the place of. You're one step away. You've tried it your own way. You've searched all around the globe, maybe, to try and satisfy what is the meaning of life, what can give me rest here. And it's all found in a relationship with God. That God has made a free gift at tremendous expense to himself. The death of his son upon that cross. All there for the asking. All there for the receiving. Because of the love of God for you. The love of God for your soul. He knows you inside and out. As I've said before, he knew when you lost your first tooth. When you got your first tooth. He knew when you got your first cavity. <laughs> he knew when you first fell off a bike. He, knew, he knows everything about your life. And he knows you're a fallen creature in a fallen world. On a search for the meaning of life. And that meaning is found by putting your faith in Christ today. And now no more bumps, no more bruises, no more casualty of your own wisdom, the wisdom of the world. But now the privilege this morning of being able to surrender to God and to spend the rest of my life, however long that is, in the middle of the life that he has planned for me. How priceless. And it's all there for the asking. All there for the receiving. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They have a badge on it that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to receive Jesus into your life today and to begin the life that God promises in his word. And that a thousand people in this room this morning can testify to the truth of and the wonder of it. I'd love to pray with you to enter into that and then give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in that relationship with God. Take advantage of the opportunity this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, as your people this morning, we want to say thank you. And again, as we say so often, would you look at our hearts because the words cannot express what's in our hearts? Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to put our faith in your Son. For the forgiveness of our sins. We stand in awe Lord. At the great effort that you went to. Not only to supply us. With forgiveness through his sacrifice. But then Lord the prophetic scriptures. To speak of him and speak of him and speak of him hundreds of times. So that when he came. No one would miss him. Whatever our education level whatever our background, that everyone can understand this. And we thank You, Lord, for the privilege of honoring You in trusting Him for our salvation. We thank You this morning that You have provided an alternative to mankind to continuing to live in a wicked and adulterous generation We thank you, Lord, for your family. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for holiness, Lord. We thank you for virtue. We thank you for goodness. We thank you that these things are real and not imaginary and that they are our daily portion as your children. We thank you for this life that you have saved us into, Lord, not just what you have saved us out of. Thank you, Lord, for your prophetic word made more sure. Thank you for the witness of the scriptures to our Savior and the place that they have played in our lives, Lord, to bring us to a knowledge of you so that we could enjoy the beauty of this life that we know every day. We give you praise. We give you honor we give you glory today, Lord, because you're due, all of that. And we give it to you, Lord, in thanksgiving for Jesus. And we pray these things in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen. These same men and women that will be up in front after the.